0: Revelation chapter 1, this is going to be the third of a year-ish worth of Revelation sermons. Um, So we're going to be Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and then we're going to skip 7 and 8, and then do 9 through 11. So 7 and 8 are coming next week, it's a teaching on the second coming of Jesus, really excited for that. So um, yeah, let's read together. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him, that's to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. And then let's skip down to verse nine. John, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like like a trumpet saying. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your word this morning, God. Thank you, the Holy Spirit. This is God-breathed that we can be confident that as we are faithful to your word, that we get to hear from you, the living God, this morning. Lord, we truly, we want, we need to hear from you, Lord, not from not from a, some human, not from just a man, Lord. We want to hear from the living God, and so we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're present now, Holy Spirit, and more than anything else, God, we truly pray that we would see Jesus more clearly than this morning, God. I pray that you would even grant salvation and new life, Lord. You would grant encouragement to those who already know your Son, that as we look at Jesus, that we would just fall on our feet. We would worship you, Christ. We would surrender all of our life to your dominion, Jesus. You are so good and worthy, and we're just excited for what you have for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so have you ever been to a museum like with, a, I don't know, an art, like an art major or just someone who's super into art, right? You, like, you're like, okay, yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll appreciate it, sure. But then th- this person's like into it, right? And so you go, you're, you're looking, let's say, at a masterpiece of this big old painting. And, you know, most of us are content to look at it for, you know, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. Like, okay, yeah, it's great and ready to move on. But then, you know, these art majors, they're like, no, I need to just, they'll study it. They, if they could, they would just stand inches from it and they could tell you the methods that he used. They could tell you the artist's emotional state. They could tell you his family history and how, why that changes everything about how you view the painting, right? And we're like, okay, yeah, it's great, you know? Um, the reality is we really do need, we need kind of both to appreciate art for what it is, right? Because on the one hand, if, if you learn more about a piece of art, you're able to appreciate it a little bit more, right? So like the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. If you learn, hey, Michelangelo wasn't even, he wouldn't even consider himself a painter. He was a sculptor. You're like, okay, wow, that's amazing. That's a pretty decent painting from a guy who doesn't paint. Yeah, I can appreciate it a little bit more. But then on the other hand, you can be so into the details and into the history that you completely miss that you're just supposed to ultimately just stand back and wonder at art, right? Or the same thing, you're watching a movie with, with a filmmaker and they're like, oh, do you see the shot they did there? And you're like, I just wanna watch the movie. Well, we really, we need both right? And the same is true when we study the word of God, right? It really does help us to understand a little bit about the background, understand about, okay, who was John and and who is he writing to? But then at the same time, some of us can can be such students of the word of God that we miss the whole point, right? It's scripture. We're supposed to surrender our lives to scripture. This is supposed to lead us to Jesus. So we really do need a little bit of both. Um, and, And what's really, really cool is in our text, John he kind of, he forms this, these verses around that concept. So he gives us some details. He, he lets us know who he was and who he was writing to and what area and what was happening. But then he also, you know, that's like the real up close. You're studying the painting, but then he, he backs off really quickly and he wants us to see, hey, this is the big picture though. Yes, here's some details, but he wants us to see even in our own text what the, the entire purpose is of the book of Revelation. And so he backs off and wants us to see that. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna just get a little bit of background. Who was John? Who were these churches? But then as he backs off, we wanna back off and I'll just spoil the sermon for you guys. He, he wants us to see Jesus this morning. That's what it's all about, right? That's what the book of Revelation's about. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's what all of creation, it's heading towards Christ. And so, yes, we're gonna, we're gonna study some details, but then he's gonna back off and say, but really, I just want you to see Jesus this morning. So let's start. So he starts in verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then if you skip down to verse nine, he gives us a little bit more. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So who was John? There's always debates, right, about who really wrote what book of the Bible, but Between church history and just good commentators, we're pretty sure this is John, like the apostle of John, the John who rested on the the breast of Jesus, the John who wrote first, second, and third John, who wrote the gospel of John and now wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, kind of a fun way we can know this is an early church father, his name was Tertullian. He lived in about 160 AD. So perspective, John died around 180. AD. This guy was born about 60 years after that. He was writing to the church and he was encouraging the church. Really cool. He was encouraging the church. Hey, if you have any doubts about Christianity, he's saying you can go visit the actual churches where they have like the handwritten accounts, the handwritten letters from the apostles. It's awesome. And then in passing, he kind of addresses John. So I think we have a quote up here. So he says, "Since moreover, you are close upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of apostles themselves. How happy is a church is its church, on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood. where Peter endures a passion like his lord's. So that's actually the first time we hear of Peter getting crucified in this writing here, um, where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's. He's referring to John the Baptist. That's a tradition of Paul being beheaded. And where the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted to his island exile. So, I mean, how crazy is that? Tradition, church history holds that John, you may have heard this, was literally, they decided we're going to kill this man. He's preaching the gospel. What do we do with him? Well, you know, we beheaded John or we beheaded, beheaded Paul. We hung Peter upside down. Let's get creative. They supposedly, according to church history, I mean, this is, pretty authentic stuff, dipped him into just a vat of boiling oil, and took him out, and he was fine. And they're like, okay, what do we do with this guy? I don't know. Let's just send him off to an island. So that's, it's not the Bible. That might not have happened, but that's church history. Pretty fun. And then it also recognizes the fact that the Apostle John, the Apostle John, was the one who was on the island of Patmos. So that's how we kind of have an idea that okay, we think this is the disciple John. And then, He was writing specifically, so look again to verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he's writing specifically to these seven churches. And then if we look to verse 11, he actually lists those churches. says Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and he he lists them all. Um, So these churches were located all in a pretty relatively close area. So we have a map here. So yeah, it was referred to Asia or Asia Minor in the time of the Bible. Now it's just modern day Turkey. Like all those churches are in Turkey and Greece is just to the left. So you can see Patmos, it's like 40 miles off of the coast. John's just, it's a little island. like five miles by eight miles. He's just on this island. Um, And God gave him that revelation. Specifically, Jesus handpicked these seven churches. And it's really cool. The, The order of the way he listed those churches are in the same order that, Uh, like the roads worked. And so it was the same order that a messenger would travel from Ephesus. He'd start in Ephesus, and then he'd go up to Smyrna, Pergamum, and he'd work his way all the way around. Just really cool thing that Jesus did. And um, so it was to those seven churches, but then it was also, you know, we've learned a little bit about Revelation. It's symbolic. So the seven, we also believe it, it had a little bit of symbolism too. So it was to these seven, but it was also, it wasn't just exclusively to those churches. It was, it was circulated, but then it was shared with other churches. Like there are other churches in the New Testament, like, Coloss- like Colossi or whatever, and other churches that they would have circulated the letter to. And then, furthermore, you know, this is in the Word of God, so it's obviously it's not just for two thousand years ago. It's for us today. We can read Revelation and know we're going to hear from God the same way they did. So that was the seven churches, and the last thing we were, we're pretty clear on at that time, was that the church was definitely under persecution, right? That makes sense why John was on an island. He was kicked off for the Word of God, and, and these churches also would have been experiencing the same persecution. Like, their leaders, imagine, just pastors just getting taken out and, and on islands. Like, imagine if that. We had to, like, wait for sermons on, from some island, and we would wait for that. So the church was under persecution. Um, they think under a Roman emperor named Domitian was the one that they were persecuted under, and he was the one who kicked John out. So to those seven churches, and so it's important to know as we read the context, right? As if we're studying this like a like a painting up close, some of the details are it was John, it was to these seven churches, it was in Asia Minor, it was a persecuted church, right? It was written from a persecuted man to a persecuted church, which really does change and affect how we read this letter, right? We have to recognize that, that's a different context than we are reading from. Yes, there's maybe minor persecution for us here in Carpentaria, but not like that. So we just have to also kind of bridge that gap as we read the word of God. Okay, this was to buy a man banished on an island and to a persecuted church. And so then he starts to back off a little bit, right? From, that, from the painting and he, he lets us know Yes, it's from John, but who's this letter really from? So look down to verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then he gives us a greeting from the entire Godhead, and he starts that greeting, and he says, grace to you and peace. And that's a pretty traditional greeting, right? Paul said grace and peace in almost every one of his letters, except for Galatians. He was mad at them, but grace and peace, it's a similar, it's a really similar thing, but A lot of times we can read that and just pass it and think, oh yeah, it's just a greeting, but let's sit there for a second. Why would why would they need grace? Why would they need peace of all the things? Why grace and peace? So, first of all, he wants them and and for us also to know as we read the book of Revelation, God intends to give us grace. Like he intends to grant grace to our church. Right? Like it really is our prayer that Jesus would save people as we study the book of Revelation. As we read his word, we, we hope and we pray that we're gonna receive grace as we look at Jesus. And then peace. And that's pretty relevant to, first of all, persecuted church, hey, peace. You can have peace from God. But then also to us, Revelation is, we've talked about, it, it's an intimidating book, right? What do the symbols mean? What does this mean? This is confusing. I don't even wanna approach it right? Maybe I'll just wait until Sunday to read it, because it's just intimidating and weird. But God wrote this. It was God-breathed, and it was clear enough that we can have peace as we read this book. We might not know what everything means. We may be confused, but God intends for us to, to receive peace as we read the book of Revelation, right? As we see that he's coming again, that he is in control, that all things are gonna end in heaven where he's ruling and reigning and Satan and sin and death are crushed. Like that, that brings us peace. So we can have grace and peace. And then he says, from him, so he begins to, to move on here to who this is from. From him, and where are we at? Verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. So right there, he's talking about the father. And then he moves on and says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we're pretty sure he's, we talk, he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. It's kind of an interesting way to refer to the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits that are before his throne. A couple ways we can know, we think that it's the Holy Spirit. First of all, he talks about the Holy Spirit in kind of symbolic Funky ways throughout the whole book of Revelation. So, another time he refers to the Holy Spirit in chapter three, he says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. And then the next chapter he says, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then, furthermore, that word for spirit. Some, the other like, alternative is these are angels, maybe, seven angels, but he never refers to angels with that word that he's using for spirit. He only refers to the Holy Spirit. So it's the same word there. And then the, the last way we can trust is the Holy Spirit is, is context, right? So he says, grace to you and peace from him who was and is, that's the father, from the spirit, and then goes on to say from Jesus. Right, so just all those things combined, okay, we think it's from the Trinity, which is really pretty cool because we know, yes, this book was written by John. That's a detail in the painting, and we know it was written to the church, but really this book, what he's saying here is it's from God. And he's just encouraging us. This is scripture, this isn't just another letter, this isn't just some advice about you know, hold on, it's gonna be okay. This is from God himself and from the Trinity. Most other letters, we don't get that. We we don't get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which is really, really cool. We, we know that we're meeting and receiving grace and peace from the entire Godhead. And then the last kind of detail to notice here is you notice the order he puts the Trinity? You notice that? Look at that. He starts with the Father and then he seems to skip the Son and go to the Spirit and then list Jesus last. You know, why do you think he does that? You think he's like, ah, oh, Jesus, you know, maybe he got bumped down a notch. He's not as important. You know, what I think he's doing here is as we've already heard, this book, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is revealing who Jesus is. And I think he, he put them last here because he's gonna go on to spend the next three verses just giving us what John Stott, a, a famous pastor, said is the entire career of of Jesus. So what he wants to do is is have us start to fix our gaze on Jesus specifically, right? Yeah, he he talked about the Father, him who was and is to come from the seven spirits, but then he gives us three verses of Jesus. He doesn't give that description or that much time or weight to anyone else but to Jesus. Because this book, you guys, it it really is. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about his authority. It's going to give us from Jesus who, who created all things to his Died on the cross for our sins, who is ruling and reigning, to is making all things new. Jesus is front and center in this. And already from the intro, he's giving us, he's fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so what we're gonna do is we're just gonna kind of simmer in those, these next descriptions he has of Jesus. We don't want to just blow past him. And so the first one he says, from Jesus Christ, he goes on to say, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. You know, as Christians, we're called to be, to bear witness, right? We're called to bear witness to the gospel and how we live. We're a testimony, you know, we, we share our testimonies. We're bearing witness to Christ, but there was one only perfect and faithful witness who went before us, and that was Jesus, right? Jesus was the only faithful witness. Think about that. No other human can say, I was perfectly faithful, only Christ. And, and why faithful witness, right? That, that, Like, I I had to think about that for a while. Why faithful witness? Of all the things that call Jesus, yes, he's faithful, but faithful witness, you know, what is he talking about? What did Jesus witness to? You know, we actually see a picture of Jesus as the faithful witness when Jesus is standing before Pilate, right, and he's beaten, and he's about to be crucified, and Jesus had an opportunity to just completely get off the hook. Right, he had an opportunity to just say, "Yeah, okay, whatever. I'll say what you want me to say." Pilate didn't want to crucify him. Pilate was trying to give him a way out. And what did Jesus do in that moment? We have we can see it in, in John chapter eighteen. Jesus told Pilate, "For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth." You know what is that truth? That, a few chapters earlier that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by me, that I'm the Son of God, the Lamb of God. And so Jesus stood firm. He stood firm in the midst of persecution. He stood firm to the point of death. Jesus was the faithful witness. And think about for a moment how encouraging that is to a persecuted church right? They actually are going to have opportunities, just like Jesus, to be standing before human rulers, and the human rulers say, hey, just tell us you don't believe in Jesus, and and we'll let you go, right? And what are they going to do? And John wants this persecuted church to have their eyes fixed upon Jesus, the faithful witness, and for them to stand firm. So the faithful witness, Christ, he's an encouragement, and so then he moves on to say, so yes, Jesus was the faithful witness. And Then in verse 5, he says, The firstborn of the dead. So what what he's referring to here is the resurrection, right? We've already heard in the Bible the term the firstborn of all creation, right? We know Jesus was there at the very beginning when he created all things. He was the firstborn of creation. But now it's kind of an interesting twist to that phrase, the firstborn of the dead. It's kind of a weird phrase, but it's referring to the fact that Jesus was the first one to be raised from the dead, but then stay not dead, Right? We see people raised from the dead in the Bible. We see prophets raise people from the dead. We saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But the sad thing is every one of them, they all died again. Right? Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead and stay alive. And that's giving us a picture of this new creation. It's giving us a picture of of the hope that we have. We're going to die like Jesus, but then we're not going to die again right? We're going to last and live forever in eternity with him. He is the firstborn of the dead. What's really cool is revelation is giving us kind of just a completion to all that has gone before in the Bible. So Jesus created all things, but death snuck into the first creation, right? But in this new creation, there is no more death, right? Because Jesus defeated death once and for all in the new creation, we will not have any more death. We see Jesus here finishing and completing all that he began when he created the world in the first place. Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. And then he moves on, still verse five, and he says, Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, right? We know that Jesus right now is sitting on his throne. When Stephen was getting persecuted, he saw Christ on his throne, Right now, Jesus, we refer to him as the King of Kings, right? There is no other King like him. There's no other King whose authority has lasted from before creation to the end of all times. Jesus has always been on his throne. He is the ruler of Kings on earth. No other King, no president, no terrorist leader, no army, we see in Revelation, not the antichrist, not false witnesses, not even Satan or death himself can take Jesus off his throne. Right, that's really good news. That was good news to this church because I'm sure they were thinking, okay, Jesus, if you're in control, like what's happening right now? Why are our pastors, why are our leaders, why are we being killed? Why are we being persecuted? Aren't you in control? And John wanted them to know Jesus was on the throne, ruling and reigning. And that's good news for us too. We're not getting persecuted, but we, we watch the news, right? And it's crazy. It really is crazy. It's a crazy world we live in and we can have this comfort. Jesus is ruling all things. Somehow we don't understand it. We don't understand why he lets things happen. We don't understand all this, but we know, we know that he is king of kings and he is working all things together for us, for the church, for those who love him. He is in control and he is able, think about that. He is able to twist any in turn, any kind of persecution or suffering on its head for the church because he is the king of kings. Nothing is outside of his control. And then still verse five. So Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. And then he makes it really personal here. He says to him who loves us. And that, I mean, just let that sink in, right? This is to a persecuted church. This is to a church that, okay, maybe God's in control but does he love us? Because I'm suffering right now. Because my family members are being taken. We can't even worship Jesus freely. And John wanted us to know, hey, he's not just in control. He is the lover of your soul. Jesus loves you. And notice this, it's in the present tense. He's not saying, yeah, Jesus, he loved you, right? No, he is actively on his throne, alive and well, loving his church. So I'm gonna read just to let us just kind of marinate in, in that. I'm gonna read for us Isaiah forty three, just the first five verses. I'd encourage you, just sit even, close your eyes. Let these words of the love of God just speak over you. Isaiah forty three, but now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, Listen, God says this over you right now, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Man, right now, Jesus is actively pursuing and loving every one of you. You may not even believe in him. He's loving you, he's pursuing you. He's extending his hands of grace out to you. If you're his church, if you're his bride, he is actively loving and working all things for your good. And then in case you're wondering, okay, so sure, Jesus loves me, That's, that sounds great. What does that, you know, what does that mean? Jesus is thinking nice thoughts about me. He goes on in the next verse to let us know the greatest way Jesus loves you. And look what he says. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood man, if you want to know, how does Jesus love me? Is it just feelings? Is he just like me? No, he laid his life down for you. Down for you. We were enemies. We were were rebels of, of the king. We didn't want anything to do with him, right? But he loved his enemies to the point of, you know what? I will suffer and die for their sins on the cross. So how does Jesus love you? Does Jesus love you? He's hanging there, taking your sins upon his shoulders, taking all the wrath of God. And then he can say of you, Lord, hold it not against them, forgive them. I love them, punish me instead, right? There's times when we can doubt, is God good? Does he love me? And and it's true, our life may be crazy and things may not feel good in the moment. But if you ever wanna know, does God really love me? Just look to the cross. Like that's how you know he loves you. He died for you. He took your punishment. He took all the wrath of God. There is none left for you. He took it all and he died on your place that you could now be forgiven of your sins and then not just forgiven, what what does John say? And has freed us from our sins, right? It'd be one thing if Jesus like, I forgive you, but you know, good luck. No, his blood freed us from our sins, right? When we chose sin, every one of us did, we put shackles on. And it was our master. And we, in all of our strength, we could not break the the chains of sin. No amount of, you know, reading good self-help books or discipline or exercise or nothing could free us from our chains, nothing. We were slaves. But Jesus walked into that dungeon and he broke our chains with his blood. I mean, it is a true statement. We are free from our sins. Every one of you are free from your sins. You are no longer a slave if you are in Christ any kind of addiction, right, any kind of insecurity, all these crazy ways of thinking, you are literally free, it's not your master. Jesus freed you by his blood from your sins. And that's how we can know he loves us. And then, John's not done, he keeps going. Okay, so Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, So this is pretty radical. We know Jesus is king, right? And he's on his throne and he's making his kingdom. But think about this. Not only has he just included us in his kingdom, just we have to remember the story. We were rebels of the king. Like we were a part of the rebellion against the king to overthrow him. Like that's who we were. We had like our swords and we were ready to overthrow the king. We get captured, we're we're condemned to death. And then the king walks into the jail cell and says, do you know what? me and my son were talking, my son will take your place. He's going to die instead. And then I want to take you and I'm going to adopt you as my son. I'm going to adopt you into my royal family. And you're now a part of my kingdom, right? And kings, they care about their kingdom, right? If, if some enemy is going to come to the kingdom and, and try and attack it, he's not like, oh, whatever. No, kings fight for their kingdoms, right? Kings would send an entire army to save their kingdom. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And we're not just a part, he, he moves on. He's given us a role. He's given us an identity in that kingdom. One of the highest, most prestigious jobs in that kingdom. He says, to him who loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to God and father. Priest to his God and father. Now I you know priest, not just anyone could be a priest, right? You couldn't just put a good resume together and get some experience and then say hey can I you know I want to I want to apply to be a priest you first of all you couldn't even control it. you had to be born into the right family right then you had to work your way up and there was only one high priest who once a year was able to go into the presence of god and if he did anything wrong or he didn't cleanse himself he would just die right and so if you're just a regular priest, you could get kind of close and then the rest of Israel would be standing far away like, man, I hope the priests are praying for us. You know, we, we want to experience the presence of God. We want his forgiveness. So this is, a, this is a pretty high up job. And what he said is, I mean, we remember on the cross, the veil was torn, right? That veil that separated us from the presence of God. And so now we are priests. We, we have the highest job description there is in the kingdom. We don't need to go to any kind of, pastor or righteous holy person and have them pray for us, right? Hey, pray for me. We can go freely just into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God as priests. And he says we can enter boldly because our high priest went before us because he made the once and for all sacrifice, atoning for all of our sins. And now we are priests fully able to enter into the presence of God. That's really good news. And so then he ends just this huge list about Jesus and this is how he's, he sums up the entire purpose old, and the entire goal, not just of revelation, not just of the whole Bible, but of all of creation. He says, to him who loves us, freed us from our sins, made us a kingdom, priest to, God as a fa- priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Man, so it, it is all about Jesus. This book, it's all for the glory and the name of of Jesus. The Bible, Jesus said, it's, it's all just testifying to me. It's about me, right? Priests are just pointing to the ultimate priest. The Old Testament, Testament sacrifices are just pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. It is all about Jesus. And John wants us to understand that all glory should be given to him and all dominion, right? That's kind of an interesting phrase. We understand glory, but what he's saying here is, is dominion. What he, he means by dominion is we need to submit. He's a king. Our lives are in his, the dominion of his kingdom and we need to be fully submitting. He has full dominion over our life. To him be glory and dominion. And we've, you know, if we read the Bible, we come to church, we've heard these things before. These probably aren't new statements. They're awesome. We need to marinate in them, but they may not be new. And so just to kind of help us process how good and true these things are, I'm gonna ask us a couple questions. So just sit and think about this. Who else in the entire Bible, in all of history, in your life has been the faithful witness? Who else has been a faithful witness? Not even the saints, not even David or Peter. Peter betrayed Jesus. Who else is the faithful witness? Who else has remained completely faithful to you every day of your life? Who else has done that? Who else grants purpose and weight to your life because it's gonna last for eternity? Who else Who else is the ruler of the kings of earth, right? Who else can say, I'm in control of every detail of the universe. I'm in control of every detail of American government. I'm in control of every detail of every government. At all times, I have full authority. Who else can say, I don't let a single sparrow fall to the ground without me being there. And I'm also simultaneously just sustaining the universe at the same time. Who else wrote every day of your life in his book before any one of those days came to be? Who else guarantees you that no matter what happens to you in your life, no matter what kind of sin or tragedy, he's gonna use it for your good. Who else loves you like Jesus loves you? Think about that. Who, has anyone ever laid their life down for you, let alone took your eternal punishment on them, on themselves? Has anyone else ever forgiven you of every sin, of every conflict? Who else, even when you don't want anything to do with them, are just pursuing you with grace and mercy and love? Let me ask, who else has freed you from any of your sins? Has anyone freed you from your sins? Has anyone else freed you from your vices, from yourself? Who else has, what other king has any of us been adopted by the Queen of England, right? Who else has included us into their kingdom? Who does that? Who else has fundamentally changed your identity? Like who you are? Only Jesus, amen? Only Jesus is faithful to the end. Only Jesus has conquered death and will make all things new. Only our Jesus is the ruler of every throne that has ever existed. Only Jesus loves your soul. Only Jesus has laid his life and taken your punishment on himself. Only Jesus offers you not just forgiveness, but freedom to live a free life, life to the full. Only Jesus offers you, think about this, a mission in life worth living for. Like who else has offered you a vision of what your life could be like Jesus? Like get a lot of money, get famous. Like who else offers you the kind of like Jesus can offer you? Only, only our Jesus. So remember that picture, we're standing at this masterpiece, right? And, and we need to back up. Too often, like our friend who, who just wants to tell us the details and the background of the painting it, too often, that's a picture of us, right, in our life. We, we're just, we're standing, we're looking at our life. We see only the details, right? We see the problems. We know, we see our stressful jobs. We see, man, our marriages are hurting. We see, man, is there hope for my kids? We see, am I gonna get that promotion? We see bills, we see debt. And we're, we look, we're this close and we're looking at all the details. And what John wants us to do, not just in the book of Revelation, but in our life is to take a step back And remember, remember what it's all about. Remember who it's all about, right? There is a masterpiece. What's interesting is Ephesians says that we, we're the masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's a masterpiece, but we're not the creator of it, right? We're not the one who who gets credit for our successes. We're not the creator. We're not even the artist. Jesus is, and he says, I the—I have to be the main goal of your life, the main purpose of your life. Are you giving me the glory I deserve? Are you surrendering your entire life to, to my dominion? Only Jesus. And so we're gonna close by reading a passage out of Colossians. We're just gonna end, we're gonna end with this. Let's together take a step back and let's look at Jesus together. <clears throat> Colossians chapter one, verse 15. <clears throat> Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things, everything holds together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So I just, I wanna end with asking you, is he your all? Is he first place in your life? You may not even know him, but know this, he has laid his life down for you and he is he's offering you a life like no other. Forgiveness, resurrection from the dead, a job that is unlike any other job. Will you trust him? Are we willing to trust Him right with those details? They're real and they're crazy. Are we willing to trust Him? Are we willing to give Him the glory that He deserves? Not just Sundays, not just second set, but when we leave, when we're at work in our marriage, in everything that we do. Will you surrender your life, your hopes, man, your sins, those areas that feel like we're still in chains? We all know those areas. Jesus says, bring them to me. I wanna have full dominion. Because he is worthy, you guys. He is worthy to be worshiped. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one who ever has been or will be like our Jesus. So let's worship him together, amen? Jesus, we are so thankful for you. There is no one like you. All things, Lord, you're sustaining all things right now. You're sustaining, Lord, our problems, our, our jobs, our families, the universe, the laws of gravity. The the end of the world, Lord, you are fully in control. And so right now, Jesus, we just truly, we wanna look to you, Christ, and we want everything else to fall. Lord, like, like the idol in the Old Testament, when the ark was brought into the presence of an idol, and the next day, the idol was on its face. Lord, we wanna be in the presence of God right now. we want to see Jesus and we want every idol every sin every vice every bit of our life to just fall on our faces before you King Jesus you are so worthy Lord you're so good to us there's no one like you Jesus God help those of us even like myself that we know but you know I don't know I don't really feel like worshipping God help us help we need your help even to worship you God God we can't muster up our worship or our obedience on our own. We need your help, Jesus. You say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So Jesus, right now, we want to bring everything to you. We want to bring our lives to you, Jesus. Our worship, our identities, our jobs, our families, our hopes, our fears. We want it all just to fall into the dominion of King Jesus. We want to give you glory now. There is none like you, Christ. Help us to glorify you now in our worship as we sing and in our worship as we go. You're so good to us, Jesus. And it's in your name. Amen.